Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. We made it to 2021. It was almost exactly four years ago that my old pal Jimmy Fennessy and I started this podcast series with the intention of providing information to college history students about potential careers inside and outside of academia after graduation. Over the past four years, we recorded around 100 interviews with historians with lots of different titles, including cultural resource managers, grade school and college teachers and professors, consultants, politicians, government historians, military historians, museum specialists, archivists, curators, lecturers, and a bunch of others. At this point, I think we have reached many of the goals that we laid out for ourselves. With that in mind, I'm going to take a break after this episode and think about where this podcast should go in the future. I'm not sure how long the break will last. The existing episodes aren't going anywhere, so feel free to take yourself back in time now and then and listen to your favorite historians. I'm having a lot of fun with this series, though, so I, or we, including Jimmy, will be back in some form in the near future. Our Twitter feed, at Work Historians, will continue, and we will share updates there as we figure out where we're going with this. For this last episode, before I go take that break, I'm talking to Dr. Peter Milich, a history professor who specializes in the history of Russia, the Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe. Today, we are going to talk about the collapse of superpowers and some of the smaller-scale collapses and revolutions in various countries today. What is your name, and what do you do? My name is Peter. Peter, People call me Pete Milich. I'm a historian, and I often teach courses in history, international relations, and classics. Great, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along, but for now, can you tell us a bit about your academic and professional background? I did my undergraduate work at St. Louis University, and I majored in history and Russian language and literature. was interested in two things, primarily uh, antiquity, namely special focus on Byzantine Empire, and that has to do with my, my background, my cultural upbringing, and uh, Russian language. My mother was born in the former Soviet Union, what is Ukraine today? And from there, I sort of cast about looking for a graduate program that would suit my interests and Ohio State. Uh, we have a shared interest, you and I, in that regard fit the bill primarily because it's Byzantinist, who's actually still there, um, is regarded as one of the foremost in the field. And secondarily, because the uh, university library boasts a unique, rare collection of medieval Slavic and some Byzantine manuscripts that were taken uh, on microform at a place called Hilandar Monastery. It's a medieval Serbian monastery located on the territory of Greece. There is a monastic republic, which has an international status, not unlike that of the Vatican, called Mount Athos. It's home to many monasteries, some Russian, some Bulgarian, uh, some Georgian even and one Serbian house and in the Middle Ages, these repositories were something like um, the universities of their day. They were uh, storehouses of knowledge and the transmission of culture, formal culture, Byzantine Greek in this instance to Slav. And so that was a, that made Ohio State a natural choice. And that's what I did from the mid eighties I attended Ohio State uh, with initial specialization in Roman, later Roman, Byzantine empires with secondary specialization in, I guess we would call it Slavic world. There's really no such locution, but we say Atlantic world, don't we? And we know what that means. Well, the Slavic world is, you know, a pretty big proposition. They are, after all, the Slavs single largest ethnic and linguistic group in Europe, divided into two cultural camps. One, like the Poles, Czechs, oriented toward, historically, toward Rome and Western Europe. The other one, uh, oriented toward Byzantium. Uh, 
And so uh, I specialize in Slavic world, meaning everything from the origins of the Slavs, their medieval states, if you want to call them states, uh, all the way up to contemporary times. And in this final regard, I do credit Ohio State. I grumbled about it incessantly at the time. <laughs> but their mantra was, well, that's just, you know, you have to think broad, Pete. You have to market yourself broadly. And I have to say that they were absolutely right. You know, uh, the reason I say that is because there was a Cold War almost at its high point with, you know, Reagan calling the Soviets the evil empire and all of that. So things, the atmosphere was very tense. And so there was a market for, you know, Russian studies and the U.S. government generously subsidized Russian studies, Soviet studies. People don't realize that, but when you think of the program that Ohio State, that the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, their library is probably the largest uh, academic library holding anything, all things Slavic in the United States. So these were Indiana, University of Indiana at Bloomington. So the Midwest was home to uh, important Slavic studies programs, advanced programs. And uh, I have to say they were right, uh, meaning I was forced to study modern and even I've since branched out into the contemporary uh, realm because to my chagrin and dismay, the Cold War ended when I finally <laughs> graduated. Well, guess what happened to the market? The bottom fell out and everybody was telling me, well, Pete, that's just too bad for you. But I mean, Russia's <laughs> down and out. And frankly, the way things are looking over there, we don't think they're coming back. So you're going to have to retool, buddy. And that's essentially what I had to do. And thanks be to Washington University in St. Louis, where I've been teaching uh, as an adjunct, as a, an instructor, a lecturer. My, my titles vary in those three departments that I mentioned, uh, history, classics, which is now where effectively most history programs are nestled. Uh, and uh, international relations. Why international relations? Well, when I, you know, when I got my PhD, I had just returned from the Balkans where I did my dissertation research in a country that used to be called uh, Yugoslavia. So I got a front you know, row seat on a country's descent into chaos not alike what we see on the streets of our inner cities today, not trying to get political, it's just providing context. I've seen this before, mm -hmm. up close and personal. So that was actually a blessing for me because, you know, universities, Washington University was keen on harnessing my expertise. So I started teaching courses on international affairs. And I did so with an eye to combining the methodologies, you know, of course, international relations, political science, the social sciences, they have a different methodology than we historians. But I've been working in my research interests since then have focused on taking the long view of contemporary conflicts. And I think uh, it, it, I found my niche, so to speak. That sounds good. And I think we want to come back and talk about the uh, foreign relations part here in just a sec. But before we move on, what was your dissertation topic at Ohio State? You mentioned that we are both Ohio States. This is going to be the all Ohio State um, discussion today, which is perfectly fine. Uh, what was your dissertation on? Uh, the dissertation was on something esoteric called the ethnogenesis of the Slavs, their appearance in the Balkans in the 6th and 7th centuries after Christ. There still is a Roman Empire. Uh, it collapsed in the West, but it continued in the East. And historians have conjured a label called Byzantine to cover that last lengthy period of Roman history. And the Slavs, their appearance, their migrations and installations into the Balkans, or so we thought, 
from uh, the marshy lands of Western Ukraine and Poland into the heart of the Balkans at Roman expense was the topic of uh, the investigation. And it essentially challenged conventional assumptions that the Slavs, their, their ethnogenesis, their original homeland, and this used to be a big hot topic in 19th century European history when the rage was, you know, Heinrich Schliemann, Troy, what are our roots? What is uh, the original homeland for this or that ethnic group in Europe? And because of the influence of German academic institutions, much of the technical jargon is derived from from German historians. So we use the word Urheimat, meaning original homeland. Well, what does that have to do with the Slavs? The assumption was the Slavs, and it was German historians who conjured this construct, that the Slavs are swamp people who came from the marshy lands of Poland and Western Ukraine. They made their migrations and installations crossing into the south bank of the Danube River into what we call the Balkans, Bulgaria, the former Yugoslavia, and they installed themselves there. Modern Macedonia has nothing to do with the Greeks of Alexander the Great and all of that. It is a largely, I say largely, Slavic-speaking entity, and its origins are to be sought uh, in these chaotic times. So the Slavs ended up doing to parts of the surviving remnant of the Roman Empire what the Germans had done previously in the 5th century by destroying Roman authority in what will become Italy, Spain, France, and of course, you know, Great Britain with the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes and all of that. So what was challenging about these assumptions well, I had to go sort of interdisciplinary, and it was natural for me to do that because my advisor is a Byzantine historian, but he's also a Byzantine archaeologist. So he's been living, spending half, uh, half the year in Greece at a place near the ancient city of Corinth, where that narrow isthmus that connects the Peloponnesus with mainland Greece uh, the Corinthia, he's been excavating there, director of something called Isthmia Excavations. And thanks to his help, I was able to use archaeological evidence uh, that proved essentially the Slavs, for them to have carried out a, a, an invasion and takeover against a complex society like the Roman empire, they would have to demonstrate social complexity and the evidence, funerary goods and other, you know, literary sources simply indicates a fairly egalitarian society. So what's going on here? Long story short, I suggested that the, the origins of the Slavs should not be regarded, uh, we should not assume that they were migrants, but that they were, here comes another one of those words, in, or they were uh, uh, original inhabitants, autochthonous populations. Well, that was a politically incorrect thing to suggest for a whole host of reasons that have to do with modern politics. Take Kosovo, for example. The Albanian population there views itself as the direct descendants of the ancient Illyrians. And so as original settlers, the land called Kosovo is theirs and the Slavs are the interlopers who came later. Therefore, Kosovo is Albanian. The Slavic interpretation is the inverse of all of that. Well, what does this do to that dichotomy? It scrambles the narrative because you're saying, and now we can add you know, phenome types to it, the DNA tests and sampling 
that is under you know that has been undertaken in, in in sufficient representative samples we can say that both of these people are fighting for claim as original settlers to a piece of land which the biology now shows which the evidence the archaeological evidence which readjusts the extant literary sources suggests they're essentially the same people and culture when when you diffuse one culture uh, languages can be diffused in the same way that material culture can be diffused well that was a very controversial thing to argue in the Balkans, which was undergoing all these wars, the wars of Yugoslav secession, as they were called. Uh, and you had these competing claims over who owns this piece of turf. Macedonia is another place, but think of the Arab-Israeli row that goes back, you know, biblical uh, passages are used, are invoked to support the con con competing claims. So it's in that genre. Well, uh, that was just something I was interested in for the sake of curiosity. And then all of a sudden I got phone calls. I was teaching this course at Washington University. And then I got a call from the CIA and the fellow wanted to come over and talk to me. And they were very interested in this idea of migration flows and who are directing these migration flows because barbarian Europe that what initiated the Middle Ages in the West and in Eastern Europe is effectively one tribe that is socially complex harnessing the egalitarian types for various kind of niche warfare functions and the Slavs were used in this particular way in the region we call the Balkans. Well, that's a flourishing industry today. There's a professor at Tufts, Kelly M. Greenhill. If you look up all the books that she's written, beginning with the war in Vietnam, where she describes how the United States, which most people don't realize after World War II, we were backing Ho Chi Minh. And we, we even backed Ho Chi Minh against the French. That's why they lost at Dien Bien Phu, because uh, the Viet Minh had first-class artillery that the French didn't suspect they had. Well, Kelly Greenhill talks about how U.S. anthropologists were among those teams that were parachuted in during World War II when... French Indochina was, you know, behind Japanese occupied lines, and we established contact with Ho. He was our guy, our horse. We were going to ride him so we could kick the French out in the post-war dispensation. Again, this is Greenhill talking. And so we harnessed the use of certain of these like Montagnard tribes to create forced population migration flows as a weapon of war. And I didn't understand why they would contact me, the, you know, the intelligence services. Why would they be interested in this obscure topic until I stumbled upon Kelly Greenhill's research? Then I realized the things that I was writing about, unbeknownst to me, they were, you know, the government intelligence services were very much interested because if you want to destabilize a region in such a way that you can establish your own proxies, clients, then you have to know, take the long view of history. And knowing how these identities crystallized at the divide between antiquity and the Middle Ages was extremely useful to them. So it's a lesson, the takeaway for your listeners is make no assumptions. You'll never know the utility of the things that you're interested in. Yeah. So two thoughts initially jumped to mind. Uh, one is that first, um, you know, it's pretty awesome that as a historian, you're getting consult, you know, you're getting asked to consult with the CIA. I mean, that's like Indiana Jones type stuff right there, which is pretty awesome. Secondly, it's also nice to hear that the intelligence agencies are taking that long view uh, because it's been kind of a persistent critique 
of American foreign policymakers that they don't take the long view in things. They don't like they don't like nuance. They don't like subtlety. They don't like complicated arguments. Especially when people are critiquing things like the Cold War and all of that, there's always a critique that the United States took a very narrow view of communism and a very short-sighted view of communism and various people involved with its communist movements, kind of like Ho Chi Minh, where they were, yeah, we were backing him until until a certain point. And at that, t- at that point, we then discarded him, even though, you know, there ended up, he ended up being kind of a he was actually a moderate <laughs> in the communist front movements and all of that. So it's, in, it's good to know that they are, at least some of them are taking kind of the long view in all of this. And just to be clear, uh, I was not a consultant for them. They made an offer. Uh, it was one that I rejected simply because had they said, do you want to be an analyst? I would have thought about it because the job prospects working as a Russian <laughs> right. who had dried up. So I thought about it, but no, they wanted, this guy was from what was then called the Directorate of Operations. That's the, sp- the spy branch. Right. The assumption was they're going to send me back to Yugoslavia to, I, I had family there at the time and they were all on different sides. And I, I wasn't interested in doing something that might be, you know, injurious to them. So it was a one-time meeting, but it was an eye-opener, and it uh, started me down a path that uh, has been illuminating, to say the least. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. So have you stuck with that line of thinking? It sounds like you've since kind of branched off into different kind of research areas or, or intellectual areas, but did you stick with that initial concept for a while before moving on to something else? Well, I'm still working on aspects of it. I'm planning on presenting at, uh, there's something called Byzantine Studies Conferences. They usually meet in the fall, but because of the whole COVID thing, uh, you know, it got disrupted. This year it was supposed to be in Cleveland. So yes, I still work on that because I want to reconceptualize what we think we know, make at least my little contribution to our understanding of the Middle Ages, the so-called Dark Ages, which upon uh, further examination were not so dark after all because of the introduction of important metallurgical technological innovations, which would take a couple of centuries uh, to bear fruit, but they were revolutionary in terms of uh, the agriculture we, the Romans never bothered when they controlled areas north of the Alps in Germany. They never bothered to really introduce farming because, surprisingly, the plows that they were using, despite the sophistication of their civilization, their, their technological prowess, they were still hanging in there with this Greek-style plow which is really only conducive to the thin, sandy soils of Greece and much of the Mediterranean basin. It doesn't work when you try and overturn that rich North European plain topsoil. And it took medieval Europeans brain power to figure out a way to do that. And of course, before the Industrial Revolution, Naturally, there's trade and there's profit to be derived from especially prestige good trade, but that benefits the the 1%, nobody else. It's not a trickle-down theory. However, most of the wealth in pre-modern societies, students are surprised to learn, is derived from the... Uh, agricultural surplus, I hate to sound like a Marxist here, I'm not knocking them, but uh, who expropriate the surplus, agricultural surpluses, they are so fond of saying, and that's true. So it's a big deal when innovations Mm -hmm. are made. I still have some things to say. I still have some things to say about how these medieval states came into being and the process whereby, you know, 
they become more stratified, more socially complex. The decisions that they make to adopt this or that formal culture, and that really is big. People sometimes ask me, well, you, you often in, use in your lecture the expression civilizational model. What does that mean? If you're familiar with Toynbee, well, he's, you know, he wrote and made a career out of, uh, you know, mapping civilizations, as the New York Times put it when they wrote his uh, obit. And this, too, is now really big because warfare today, we're in the midst of this Cold War 2.0 with the Russians, not the Soviets, the Russian Federation, but it's no less acrimonious, no less tense as the Russiagate business attests domestically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what the Kelly Greenhills now are shifting to is in terms of if you're going to acculturate, if you're going to co-opt areas of spheres of influence, then you have to be careful to bring in the anthropologists. And we are very careful about this. We have, you know, uh, academic historians and the intelligence services. They're very careful to hire all kinds of specializations and they ask them questions. How would you, you know, how would you destabilize a society? What, what, what methods would you use short of kinetic, you know, force? And today, most of, war, of the warfare models that uh, not just the United States, but the Chinese and the Russians have adopted, warfare is now 70% waged on the internet using social media. You, you get your activist using Twitter to a certain precinct. I've watched this develop in the late 90s and throughout the first decade of the 21st century. And it's often dubbed by the IR people as color-coded revolutions. And they're, they're color-coded because in Ukraine, we had the Orange Revolution. In Georgia, we had the Rose Revolution, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, so these are predicated on co-opting youth and uh, sort of inculcating, cultivating in them either cancel culture. This cancel culture stuff is not new. It's been discussed in various nascent guises since the late 1990s. And why mention this? Because it's the stuff of which our colleagues who are teaching their courses, hey, I know something about that. Weave it into your, you know, your 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 lectures. So, since you either through your research or through happenstance and all of that, you've been talking about how you've kind of been, you know, not not at the center, but you've been at least had firsthand knowledge and research knowledge, maybe secondhand knowledge of kind of the collapse of various empires. I mean, you've already talked about how you were studying. Uh, for the Cold War, and then the Cold War came to an end. You have been looking at cultures within the former Yugoslavia, and you were there as Yugoslavia was crumbling. And so you're, you're and, and you kind of drew the connection earlier about things that you're seeing kind of happening in the U.S. now. And so while you said before that you don't want this to become a political conversation, and I don't think it needs to be a political conversation either, but if we're basing things simply on your observations, uh, you know, what are the connections and what are the similarities of things that you've seen happening in those other historic, what are now history, uh, those other historical events, places, uh, how, how do you see, what parallels do you see with what's happening now? Uh, the use of social media is foremost among the considerations. There's something that uh, is called the Twitter revolution, and it was applied to this obscure former Soviet republic called Moldova, Moldova exists uh, in between Romania and Ukraine, and it had been part of the Soviet Union. Its population is, in ethnic terms, mostly Romanian. Romanians are not Slavs, although they share with the Slavs their Byzantine inheritance in that their 
they're not Roman Catholics, they are Orthodox Christians. The remaining population is Slavic and rather inclined favorably towards Moscow. The Russians have a garrison. The way the Soviet Union broke up, they were able to maintain military garrisons in certain places that are no longer officially part of the Russian Federation. So Moscow, it's a frozen conflict area. And the West has been trying for some time to get most of Moldova, the leadership there, to, uh, to get into power a pro-Western Atlanticist cadre. And the way this was done, I was actually MA, uh, MA thesis advisor to a student of mine at Washington University, I had him as an undergrad student, and it turns out he was given a full ride by these NGOs, and there are many of them, but one name that routinely pops up as uh, a benefactor who bankrolls a lot of these is Mr. Soros's Open Society Initiative. So these NGOs that had offices, well, they have them in virtually every city where there's a major university. They sponsored him. They gave him a full ride and Washington University is not cheap, usually reserved for students for, uh, who get you know very high test scores and parents with deep pockets. And I was often wondering, how did, how did he even get in here? His English is not very good at all when he was an undergrad, but he got in because they were really stringent about, uh, you know, they, they certainly recruited abroad, but all the foreign students were very, their, their English proficiency was impressive. That wasn't the case uh, in, in this particular instance. He ended up getting his MA in the International Affairs Program, and I was his uh, thesis advisor. The topic was, and I can provide the link to it, uh, the Twitter revolution that took place in Moldova, I think it was 2007. And the whole idea was, we're going to kick out this guy who's running the place because we think he's rather too chummy playing footsies with the Kremlin. And we want somebody in there who's going to be very pro-Western. How are we going to do that? Well, Twitter was one of the this was a pioneering social revolution using this new technology. The problem was Moldova was once a very wealthy place in pre-modern times before Romania even became Romania. It was called the Principalities. And that region of Moldova was well known throughout Europe for its fine wines and fertile, rich soil, that sort of thing. So it was a wealthy place, but it fell on very hard times during the 1990s, largely because of uh, IMF, World Bank, what some people call asset stripping or conditionalities. We'll give you a loan, but in exchange for this loan, you have to sell off your national assets, your telecom, your national rail, often for pennies on the dollar. And you know, lo and behold, they end up becoming part of a portfolio of some international conglomerate. And that's part and parcel of this. The problem was, how are, you, or how are we going to get our cadres? Now, these cadres, like this young man, very nice fellow, were given full rights, either at places like Washington University, they were selected by embassy staff personnel in the host country, and most of them end up going to places like MIT or to Princeton, Harvard. Ohio State is a big outlet for many of them because the Mershon Center is now kind of front and center in terms of the theoretical side 
of these color-coded revolutions. Most of the theoreticians uh, are at Mershon, so another Ohio State collection, uh, connection there. But the problem was, okay, if we train these youth cadres, how are we going to get them to sway an election, especially in the capital city there where most of the population was then concentrated as people fled, you know, the countryside, there was no opportunity, there was no money, there was, people were starving. It was, you know, bad times for Moldova. And the solution was we can use this new technology called Twitter that, that can alert our activists once our polling data suggests this or that precinct is in play, we can send our activists there. Now, what, what are they doing there? Well, effectively, they're, part of the drill is hiring thugs, uh, brutes and nasties in some cases, to intimidate voters to vote a certain way, thereby, you know, diverting the outcome or trajectory of a revolution. It's a kind of coup, a soft power coup, which is really the phrase, uh, that's what soft power means. But there was one missing component on the technology side. Uh, Moldova's infrastructure was just absolutely de beyond decay. Well, not to worry, the Congress went to work, passed the legislation and US taxpayers paid for brand new cell phone towers throughout Moldova, just in time for the revolution. That's interesting. And so how does this, or does this fit with your current, your current work on international affairs? You said that you've been kind of breaking into that game a little bit uh, because of various work that you were doing for Washington University. But, you know, so w where is your, you, you talked a bit about already about how you're continuing to do some of the research that you worked on in your dissertation, but what other directions are your research going? Where, where, where are you going from here, I suppose? Well, these color-coded revolutions often coincide with important decisions that are made in these countries, these obscure countries, which by virtue of geography are in the way. Now, most of the tensions between the United States and the Russian Federation that we subsume under rubric Cold War 2.0 is their energy wars. The, the Soviets, during the 1970s and 80s invested heavily. The Soviet Union today, by some measures, it's the leading oil uh, exporting state having surpassed Saudi Arabia, and it has enormous reserves. In fact, the Russian Federation with Siberia especially is rich in natural gas, <coughs> excuse me, natural gas in oil, and rare earth, diamonds, gold, you name it. So for the Putin government, an important source of revenue, as it was for the Soviets in the waning decades under Brezhnev of the Cold War, the Soviets built an extensive network of pipelines from the USSR into Eastern Europe that terminated in Western Europe. This is uh, this upset the United States greatly because it was f a call form of energy diplomacy. And the United States did not like that for obvious reasons. It was vying for the Europeans were in a tug of war between these two superpowers. Nothing has changed except for while oil continues to be, you know, an important commodity to be sure. And I should hasten to, to, to add in this regard, Soviet uh, petroleum theory never regarded oil as uh, a fossil fuel. They call it the abiotic theory of oil, but we can discuss that later. The new energy source, the clean energy source as it's touted, for the 21st century that's at the epicenter of these great power machinations is natural gas, of which the Soviets have all kinds. They have tons of it. And they are exporting it via pipelines 
to Western Europe. And to main, one of the main beneficiaries today is China. You're buying up more and more so, uh, Russian oil and natural gas as its economy continues to mushroom. Most of these conflicts in which these color-coded revolutions in which civilizational models in which migration flows are, you know, distinguishing features, there is a pattern here, happen to be in countries that are transit countries that are really important to one side or the other. Little known to most observers, the Balkans is at the epicenter of that. The Yugoslav Wars of Secession had many underlying causes, but one of which was which river valley is the American-sponsored or the Russian-sponsored pipeline going to traverse? Kosovo is one of those. Why Kosovo? Why was there a war there? In large measure, because big, you know, energy giants are confronting each other. There was supposed to be something called the Trans-Balkan Pipeline or AMBO, Albanian, Macedonian, Bulgarian oil, that uh, was supposed to, uh, it, it more or less parallels an ancient Roman military highway called the Via Ignatia. But uh, for some reason, AMBO was a subsidiary of ExxonMobil. Not sure why that project ever came to fruition, but there are, there's plenty of suspense uh, because the Russians have been trying to build their so-called South Stream natural gas pipeline into Bulgaria. The United States, NATO blocked that via the EU. Bulgaria is a member of the EU. Serbia is not. Bosnia is not. Kosovo is not, so there are pieces in play. Then the United States, uh, then the Russians, Putin went to Mr. Erdogan in Turkey, and instead of a Russian-Bulgarian pipeline, it's now called Turk Stream. So it goes under the Black Sea, think Crimea and all that stuff, and it terminates in European Turkey, just uh, north of Istanbul, and that, now it's at the border with Greece and Bulgaria. The United States does not want that pipeline to reach into the heart of the Balkans and to provide energy independence and security to the Europeans. An even bigger showdown is going on in Germany. The Russians have bypassed uh, Poland and Ukraine as transit states, you wonder why is there a conflict, Crimea and the Ukraine? Because the government, the pro-American government in Kiev today uh, blocked Russian gas exports to Europe, making it look like they were unreliable energy partners. Well, where are you gonna get your energy? The United States is now claiming to be in the energy export business. That was true under President Obama very true under President Trump. He's been emphasizing this uh, aspect of his foreign policy. So there's a showdown going on with the Germans. The Russians and the Germans have already built something, a pipeline that goes under the Baltic Sea, bypassing, you see, it's like a game of chess, bypassing Poland, and uh, it terminates in Germany. Well, that was called Nord, N-O-R-D, Stream. Germany, it's export-driven economy, industrial powerhouse, yada, yada, yada. We all know that as historians, that's still the case. Uh, they're, they're starved for energy. Nothing really has changed in that regard. They need more natural gas, not less. So they're building something called a new leg to Nord Stream called Nord Stream 2. It's within just a few miles of completion and the hurdles and obstacles the U.S. is throwing up uh, to, to scupper this is just, it, why, why watch soap operas when you can watch this, I tell my students. 
So thank you for that. That sounds really interesting. And uh, before we go, can you tell us, do you have anything to recommend to us today? Since uh, I joined uh, SNHU, the one class graduate course that I teach more of, uh, I teach the Russian revolutions and uh, American empire and Cold War course. And during the course of, uh, you know, as we progress through the stages and readings of uh, Cold War, one thing that does concern me is not a, a, a criticism directed at our students. I see it at Washington University. I see it at, at I, my colleagues at conferences complain about the same thing. Uh, and that is students today are less steeped in what we call grand strategy. Now, there's a field that was actually started by historians after World War II, it's called strategic studies. And the most, two most popular courses within that field today, there's been an efflorescence of interest and study and demand in it is grand strategy, that's one. The more popular variant being something called geopolitics. So my recommendations in this regard it are uh, Professor uh, Alfred McCoy, who until recently was chair at the, of the history department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's written many books. He's an East Asia expert, but he, his many books also touch on the conduct of American foreign policy, often with a Cold War approach, a theme. I do have a lecture. He was promote on a book promoting tour just before Warren. He was in Seattle in some some coffee shop with you know. So when you, I'm going to give you the, convey the link when you the opening segments. I don't know who recorded that video, but you're going to see the Jolly Roger appear with some bizarre music, uh, and it'll say <laughs> Pirate Productions. I have no control over that, but it's Professor McCoy. He's promoting his book. One of the most brilliant overviews of U.S. policy going into World Wars One and Two that set the stage for Cold War. I think it's an indispensable view if you can't get your hands on the book. And then secondarily, there is a professor at uh, the London School of Economics, which was co-founded by one of the founders of geopolitics, Halford Mackinder. And he's a Russian historian. He's, he's dubbed a, an international historian with expertise specialization in Imperial Russia, Dominic Lievin. And he's the same Lievin, by the way, if you've read Tolstoy's War and Peace, that's the same Lievin. His family aristocracy, uh, you know, senior aristocracy, fled Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, he's now a prolific scholar, but he has this wonderful lecture on the Napoleonic Wars, the outcome, and how after that, the defeat of Napoleon, the Cold War really began as Britain and Russia contested each other's empires in places like Afghanistan, a ref familiar refrain. And it dovetails very nicely uh, in terms of methodology that he proposes. He calls it God's eye view. He says, if you're interested in gender studies, if you're interested in good old fashioned diplomatic history, we don't have to go about it the old soporific way. This guy said that, that guy said that. That'll put uh, even even students of student uh, of political history to sleep, but if you tell them what the playbook was, that the generals and the politicians, kind of like knowing all the New England Patriots, what the other team's playbook is, well, if you have that, then you can your response is going to be intuitive. If we tailor in our course refreshes and maybe some new course offerings down the road as circumstances permit with this emphasis, I think we'll draw in possibly even more students. And for those of you who take heed of this uh, approach, 
uh, I wish you the best in your attempts to integrate this into your lectures. All right. Well, that's those sound really interesting. I look forward to uh, seeing those videos. My recommendation this week is a documentary series on Netflix on the Challenger uh, space shuttle disaster uh, back in 1986. Uh, of course, when the space shuttle Challenger blew up just after launch in um, January of uh, 86. And I was one of those school children that they have in all the videos that was watching it take off and saw it happening. And then, of course, for, it then got replayed on TV for the rest of the day. And so I remember it from kind of the school child perspective. But this was it's an interesting, it's a four-part uh, series. Um, each episode is, I think, 45 minutes-ish, uh, where they basically talk about the the, the Challenger and the, and the disaster. They kind of trace back the when the disaster, uh, you know, basically how the various events were set in motion that ultimately culminated in the in the disaster. And so it talks a lot about the O-rings and the the red flags that various people were raising along the way on the design of the O-rings and the problems of the O-rings during extreme weather conditions. And so it does a really good job, I think, of kind of tracing all of the steps that were taken by various people to try to prevent the tragedy and then also the decisions of people in NASA to kind of plow forward, even though they were notified of potential problems here. And so it's a really interesting documentary. It's uh, they put to, they managed to interview a lot of really interesting people. They interviewed a lot of the engineers that were raising the concerns, but they also interviewed or uh, sorry, they also interviewed the NASA administrators that made the decision to go forward with it. And so it's a, a good collection of people that provide really both sides of the story, but it really does kind of focus on the idea that there was a culture of risk and a culture of, you know, we need to keep to the schedule regardless of safety concerns that was really exposed by that. So it's a really interesting documentary. Like I said, it's a four-part series on Netflix. I think it's worth checking out for anybody that's interested in, you know, Either the Challenger just as a disaster on its own, or, you know, my wife and I are huge space nerds, so we like all that type of thing. So I recommend it to uh, anybody listening. So that's my recommendation, the Challenger, the final flight on Netflix. All right. And with that, uh, thank you for joining me today, Pete. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app including Stitcher, Lyceum, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Pete Millich, I'm Rob Denning. Have a great 2021 and keep an ear out for new developments regarding working historians. Take care.